0: Welcome to the Soul Maven Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marie. This podcast is for the woman who is ready to become the maven of her soul. She has resilience, patience, determination, and discernment. Her mind is open to new information, yet will not be swayed by just any idea presented to her. She's ready to do the inner work and self inquiry it takes to really know herself. She's ready to get real with her past, her shadow, and her hidden desires. She understands the seasons and cycles of her life. She's living in her body, present with her experience, and bold in her course of action. This podcast is a soul-led exploration of this path. And now, let's begin, Mavens. Mavens. Uh, got it. Okay, perfect. Got it. Hi Deb. <laughs> Thank you so much for setting aside time to do this with me. My very first makeshift sort of rough dry run podcast.
1: <laughs> right. my cat's here.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Welcome, cat. <laughs> So I thought maybe we could start by just um, maybe sharing a little bit about how we met so that anyone who's listening knows how we came to be, which is, I mean, I feel like I know, but it also feels like I have always known you for a long long time. (laughs) Um, And we can sort of lead into what that led to, which was a hike, a summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. And we'll get to that a little bit later towards the end of the podcast, but um, why don't we start with just who you are and maybe sharing just a little bit about your background with fitness and um, your, your athletic world. Um, and I'll be digging in with some questions around that, but who are you, Deb? Tell who us, am I? Of, let us know a little bit about who you are. What are you doing in the world right now? And Well, I'm a mom,
1: <laughs> mom of three kids. Uh, I'm a wife. I'm a business owner. Uh, I have lots of aspirations still to come, um, climbing aspirations, running, racing aspirations. As far as where this started, I always have trouble with answering that question, because there's been no defining moment really, like where this started. It was really back from when I was a little kid. My brother and I are only a year apart. So we've always been very close and I was sort of his little shadow. And so whatever he did, I did and sports seemed to be where we both gravitated. So I've been doing sports my whole life. Oops, sorry. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, it, it kind of just started there and has led into quite a fulfilling athletic career really up to this point it's been like 45 years i guess or so that i've been involved with sport um it started off running and then it was triathlons and then it was trail stuff and then it was mountain stuff and now it's higher altitude mountain stuff and then longer running stuff so yeah it's it's just all sort of morphed into the next adventure and i don't know what the future holds because i think there's still more in store for me (laughs)
0: Oh yeah. I have no doubt about that. (laughs) And it's amazing. I mean, a lot of us, or, you know, maybe a lot of listeners will have a background in sports or athletics, but Deb, what you've done is like next level. Like that was a very humble (laughs) and I'm not surprised a very humble sharing of, of the adventures that you've taken and where this has all led you. Um, Let's start like back, we met at a clinic um, that I was working at and you were doing some work, you know, supporting your health. And I shared with you that I was um, interested in going to um, to Tanzania to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And it's a whole funny, wild story how that came into my world. But there was like an instant yes from you. I thought you were going to leap out of your... Seat and I was so happy um and that's sort of where your first climb and my only climb happened is that right um yes it was your first but certainly not <laughs> nearly your last
1: yeah so when, when we first started talking about that when we first met I had an opportunity to climb Mount Kilimanjaro the year before that's right and it- because my oldest daughter had had a stroke. So I was um, home taking care of her. So that got postponed. And then when you mentioned it, I jumped all over it because I thought, yes, this opportunity came again. It's meant to be. And then that's where our journey together started was with Mel Kilimanjaro in Africa. And it's really blossomed into such a beautiful friendship that I cherish
0: (laughs) every day. Me too. And, you know, there's like the climb, there was the whole adventure itself, but the preparation, right? Mm -hmm. There was a whole big buildup where we were out and you were always leading the way. And I, I've always felt so, um, what is it like? So supported and grounded, even if we were hiking through the woods and I had no orientation of where we were, I was just, you know, follow your pace. Um, you led the way. And in that time we had so many good talks. I mean, that's how the whole friendship really blossomed. And I always say like women walking and talking like it, deep stuff comes up and, uh, (laughs) (laughs) nothing like it. Nothing like it. Yeah. And, um, so we did a lot of fun preparation for that. There was probably about six months. I'm going to say, was it my,
1: throughout the winter and we had those middle of the night hikes that we would go through the night and minus 30 and
0: <laughs> it was a crazy winter
1: it was it was super cool but it was great preparation but that's kind of the start of the fun yeah it was it was a good six months or more of us getting out and doing those hikes and having weight in our pack and spending hours and hours in the trail going through snow testing out gear testing out food taking lots of pictures (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah and all the while there was like both a physical mental and emotional preparation because it was still new for each of us you know um you were more you had more of a background than I did certainly you understood gear and weather and training and you had done already so many incredible um races which um I'm gonna ask you about that. Can you tell me a little bit about some of your marathon um, journey and how that started? And then we'll circle back to Kelly at the, at the end, I think.
1: Uh, so marathon racing started for me after I had my first child and it was kind of an escape initially. He started running again. I was always a runner. Then I had taken a couple of years off throughout university and and trying to article for my um, my designation. And when I had my first child, I needed some kind of escape, so I I went back to running and instantly got back into marathon running. So I was doing marathons for a number of years, and I think just the constant pounding on the pavement started to catch up with me. So then I started cross training, and that's when I got into triathlons. And then from there, it was Ironman triathlons, and I f- I found the endurance part really Um, spoke to me just the longer I was out there the more it required of me the more I got out of it and so that's where I think the birth of endurance started for me was loving the adventure of being out there for hours and hours and then it turned into multi-day stuff so I started trail running and then I I got into the um the long endurance mountain races which are four or five days in a row. And that to me is where I find my peace. Uh, I find being out there, it's just, you're so stripped down when all you can do is put one step in front of the other and it just becomes so real. So I find that gives me the biggest amount of joy, I guess. It's not, it's not happiness per se because you are suffering, but it, but it gives me a lot of joy being out there for that length of time and just being in my head and figuring out problems and testing patients and troubleshooting and, and just working through the issues that you have. Um, I find it just makes me really strong to endure other life challenges. When I come out of that, I come back and I think, yeah, you know what your problems, you can you can work through them. Like nothing is unsolvable with enough time and patience. I think that's the
0: biggest from being out there actually. Wow, wow. Um, and doing this alongside the marathon is sort of raising three children. (laughs) Um, I feel like I can see a lot of parallels there too. um, walk us through what it's like. Can you sort of give us an idea? I mean, some people are hearing, okay, what four or five days running, like, what does that really mean? Can you sort of walk us through what it's like to prepare for that and what actually happens in a race like that? And, and then maybe we'll get to some of the The interesting parts that i find um you know around hallucinations (laughs) but we'll start from Uh, the beginning
1: (laughs) so okay so a multi-day event uh so the distances range they could be 350 400 kilometers and you're going through the mountains and it's a point-to-point race so There's a cutoff time the clock starts when you when you cross the start line so you've got X number of hours to make your way from start to finish. So, however you organize that is up to you if you take breaks, if you have naps if you, you know, just hang out and look at the scenery it's it it all counts towards your total time. So you have to manage your time accordingly to make sure that you can hit each checkpoint and hit the end before the cutoff so it ends up that you, you run continuously for, you know, several days straight. So it could be 60, 70, 80, 90 hours, however long it takes you to finish. So it's, it's a real journey in itself because again, you're managing your time, you're managing yourself, you're managing your emotions, you're managing your moods, you're managing your pain levels. um, And like you said, sleep deprivation. So if you're running through the night and you're going continuous days by night two, night three, you you're mind is sort of in a different place so yeah you do have hallucinations you see some pretty weird things (laughs) um and and again it's part of managing that process and working through it in order to get to the finish line so it is it is a continuous running event and it's taking you to places that you can't get to by cars so i mean getting there by means something pretty significant Um, because they're places that normal people won't ever go to, Um, or like, you know, you you won't go to a family vacation and and see these places. You have to get there, you know, by your own steam. So it it means more to me to to be able to do that because it's the accomplishment of it, I think, of getting there and getting through it and getting to the end. Um, How to prepare mentally for it. Sometimes you can't really, it's just a matter of being there and dealing with whatever is thrown at you at the time. So again, it, it, Gives you sort of life skills to deal with other challenges when you come back and you think, oh, I I have, you know, issues at home or I have issues at work or I have issues with the kids. And it's a matter of just dealing with them as you go. And I think that's a skill that is definitely learned through that kind of environment for me anyway. Um, And it's allowed me to really manage my stress levels and manage my workload and manage my responsibilities um, just by not getting overloaded and just
0: taking one step at a time. That's, that's just like ripe with metaphor and so beautiful. Um, I, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about Kilimanjaro and, and I just want to ask, and you can share as much or as little as you want, but you shared that your daughter had a stroke right before the year before we went to Kilimanjaro, um, How did that, how did all of, because by then you had already done multiple um, endurance races and, you know, that is one of the scariest things for a a mom to go through is any sort of health challenge with the child. Um, Can you, can you share maybe a little bit about how, where you've gone, where you've dug deep into and how that supported you through supporting then your daughter?
1: Hmm. I get a lot of support from my family. I get a lot of, I guess, strength from my family. Um, and things like that, like we've had a number of health issues with all of our children, accident-related or health-related. Or health um, and I find just each of those obstacles um, has brought us closer as a family. So I draw a lot of strength um, from my family. So when something like that happens, I find we just kind of close ranks around each other and that's how we get through it is just by supporting each other and um, trying not to get overwhelmed by things. And I think, again, drawing back to, to the endurance stuff is being methodical and being patient and taking any issues you have and just taking them one step at a time. So when something like a life event happens like that and you're faced with it, you've got no choice but to work through it. You you can't quit, you can't, you know, walk away. This is your child. So you you just have to methodically kind of deal with the issue day by day and use your family as support. And I think that started sort of our journey with, you know, this whole health thing, because we we'd had a few health instances before that, but that was sort of the first major one. And it seems like every time we have one, we kind of draw on the lessons that we learned through that one. And how to get through the next one and and again it's just really strengthened us as a family um and it strengthened our love for each other really <laughs> um when you when you that you're so appreciative afterwards of the health that you do have and the things that you can accomplish because of what you've done because of what you've gone through and and what you've been able to overcome um and and you know last year or two years ago now our son had a car accident and he broke his back and that was the same kind of situation where again we just had to close ranks around each other and support each other and get through it. And I think life skills that you learn in any kind of athletic endeavor um, really help prepare you for that kind of challenge because again, you're, you're faced with having to, to work through something. You can't just walk away from it. Um, so again, life skills are pretty parallel to that and to climbing as well. If you're on the top of a mountain, you have no other choice but to get yourself down. So how do you work through problems that you have up there? You just have to work through it day by day, step by step. Um, and that's helped, you know, sort of in our family life too, any problems that we have, we just work through it step-by-step
0: with each other. Mm. Amazing Deb. Yeah. You speaking of mountains, um, you just had a pretty intense experience in Alaska, right? That was the last one. That's Mount Denali, if I'm correct. And, um, that was in the spring, um, Can you share with us a little, for those who don't know about the mountain or where it is, um, a little bit about that experience first, how you got there, um, what that, and you know, it was right in the middle of, you know, COVID time. So you had all of that stress and pressure on top of it. And then, um, walk us through, because I know it got pretty intense up there and Mm -hmm. I'm curious when, when, or if it shifted from an experience of, oh, I'm on an adventure, um, I'm doing another mountain this is a travel experience it's an athletic experience to one of maybe like some really deep decision making and um, survival so it did turn into a trip
1: of survival um, I'll give yeah. you a little bit of background so I had actually before that even um, so my project for the seven summits started actually with Kilimanjaro and the seven summits are the tallest peak on each of the seven continents around the world So after Denali, after I summited last year, I had completed six of them. So Denali was kind of like my nemesis. I had been there three times uh, over the course of four years. So my two previous summit attempts, um, I had to turn back and come back down just as I was looking at the summit. So I had spent three weeks climbing the mountain and I had to turn around and come down without summiting. Went back a second time, same result. Um, I was supposed to go back in 2020 and then it was deferred obviously because everything was canceled that year went back in 2021, and that was actually the fourth year of my life that I had spent preparing for this mountain. So it was pretty meaningful to me to be back there again and and to actually get a summit this time. So we went early season and it was just brutal weather. There hadn't been anyone on the mountain in two years. We were the only people on the mountain at that time. So a lot of just breaking trail on our own, trying to find the route, navigation, um, dealing with terrible weather. And It was a real test actually of endurance and just of your own self um, to stay up there. So we actually got to high camp and we were pummeled by storm after storm after storm. And that's when it kind of changed from the, okay, I'm doing a climb, you know, trying to summit to this is becoming uh, risky and ultimately life threatening because we were there on our own with no support. There was no, helicopters that could come get us there was no rangers up there so we spent nine days just battling the storms at seventeen thousand feet and uh, you kind of question what you're doing up there at that point like why am i here this this is not how i want to go out (laughs) and uh it it became kind of scary actually um but again when you're in that kind of situation you have no choice but to try and just do your best to, to work through it so we hunkered in our tent and we dug little snow caves in in the in the ice where we just buried our stuff and buried ourselves and waited at the storms and then when it was finally. uh, I guess the weather was sufficient enough that we could move, we did, and we actually were able to summit, and then we just came right back down the mountain we didn't want to spend any more time up there than we had to. Um, So I think sometimes those things can turn on you and, and you're they're not in your control it's weather dependent It's it's the conditions of the mountain and. You know, when you're faced with that, it, it's, it's like a real story. It's, you know, how do you, how do you get home? Because I, I, you know, I always promise my family that I will come home and I am, I'm a very risk averse climber, I would say. I don't go into situations where I deem them too risky or if the conditions aren't perfect, then I won't go. Um, and finding myself in that situation was scary because it was kind of like, okay, what do I do to, to make sure that I get home to my family? So it was almost a month that we were on the mountain, which was a long time. And when I came back down, um, I was really questioning if I wanted to go back up into any more mountains again um, because of that experience. Of course, time and distance, I I am going back to
0: another one next year. Um, Not just anyone, but. (laughs) Yeah, a big one. (laughs) Yeah. And well, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely pick your brain on that for sure too, but I just want to go back to, you know, I'm just sort of imagining you dug in. So how many people were you in your group?
1: The total, there
0: was four of us in our team. Just so four.
1: we get responsibilities on the team and, and you are really working as a team. You rely on your team members to, to support you, you support them. So one of us was responsible for just cooking. Uh, one of us, for making sure the tent was secure one of us was responsible for digging out the snow caves so you each have your job um and that's basically your only priority is to make sure that that job is done and that you have you know done your job to support the team and then we would rotate because you know nine days is a long time to be up there just doing one thing uh so then you know the next day we'd rotate the next person would be responsible for making sure the tent didn't blow away and You know, cooking up there is a very unique experience. Um, It can take, you know, three to four hours just to get enough snow and ice melted to make water. So it can be an all just to try to feed yourself. (laughs) So it becomes quite the burden. So, yeah, if you have one person that's responsible for that, then at least you don't have to worry about, you know, going out, digging up the ice, bringing it in, cooking. So yeah, with four people, it becomes a really tight knit group and they become your new best friends really (laughs) because you're, you you know, your, your safety and, and getting back down together.
0: Yeah. That takes a lot of trust and a lot of, um, surrender too. I mean, the, the part in me that wants to control things, you know, you really have to trust that the other person is going to do their job to the best of their ability Um, along with yourself so there's this yeah combination of trust and surrender that feels really powerful and I'm just listening to you talk like that too and I think about how and how you are with your family and the way that you talked about rallying and and supporting each other I feel like it it really it crosses both realms you know you bring that into your home life too right um yeah So one more question about Denali and then we'll talk, um, about what's coming next because you said six. So that means you have one left to complete this (laughs) incredible pardon. I have one left. Just one little old mountain that some of the listeners may have heard of, but, um, I want to ask you about the cold, because for a lot of us here in southwestern Ontario, you know we're battling right now we're at the end of March it's like minus six minus 14 with windshield, Um, (laughs) we get really really swayed by the weather you know and I say it lightly but it's it's a really big deal it feels like in our narrative and we're averse to the cold you know minus the people who are out maybe heavily into winter sports but our mood our day our plans you know just our well-being is really dictated it feels like by the weather which is uh, it though it is kind of volatile in the sense of it's always shifting where we are in the world you know it seems like it's warm and then cold. So kind of manic, we never really know what's going on. But, um, you know, I did a Wim Hof experience a couple years ago. um, And, you know, it was powerful. And it wasn't like doing a sauna and then going into the cold, it was using the breath, using meditation, the power of your mind to get into, you know, below zero uh, temperatures, but just for a minute. um, But even that one minute I felt like the nearness, the potential for death, right? Like if I stayed in this water for too Mm -hmm. much longer, I would, you know, pass out and hypothermia and you feel that it's there in the distance. And I had the power to get out. But, um, when I came out, I felt incredibly alive and a lot more resilient in that winter. Let's say, um, I feel like I've softened up a lot again, but, the, the correlation between resilience to the cold and the resilience to just adversity and discomfort and pain um, is really interesting. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about that and your experience in those frigid temperatures for that amount of time.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting when you said, you know, when you came out and, and you, you felt close to death. It's there's a saying that I heard once that when you're closest to death is when you feel most alive <laughs> and, and that because you, you feel so present. Wow, I am, I'm on that razor's edge, um, and yeah, there's times when you're up there when it's so cold that you just don't know how you can make it through, and your your fingers are going numb and your feet are going numb. And self care up there is is the most essential piece that you can um, do when you're up there. And so self care would be even something as simple as drinking water. You need to drink about five to six liters of water a day, because the water helps to hydrate you, and if you're dehydrated, that can lead to frostbite. So things like you know, something so simple as drinking water, but it it takes so much effort. Like I was saying before, how it could take you four hours just to melt enough ice to make water. So it's not as simple as just, oh yeah, I'll keep drinking water. There's a lot that goes into that process. Same thing with food, like just eating will raise your temperature enough so that you can help ward off hypothermia. So again, simple self-care things that I guess we take for granted in our everyday life they're huge things when you're up in the mountain because they're so difficult to do but you have to make yourself do them. So the weather is something that's out of your control because it you know it, you're you're in that environment that you can't affect the weather but you can affect what you do to take care of yourself, you can affect the clothing that you wear, just being really self-aware that oh if I'm sweating when that cools okay I'm going to start to get really chilled so make sure you don't work hard enough that you're sweating. Have your layer system dialed in, um, you know have your gears that you know what you need for various temperatures. The coldest place I've ever been was Antarctica and I did experience frostbite in Antarctica and it happens so quickly so it just it brings home the importance of self-care and being self-aware and just constantly doing that head-to-toe assessment of oh, it's been 10 minutes since I had a drink okay, I should take another drink and how are my toes feeling? How are my fingers feeling? How are my, how's my body feeling? am I really tired and just really knowing um, knowing your limits, I guess, and just being very aware of not pushing beyond those in that kind of environment, because it, it can get critical um, if if you're not keeping care of yourself.
0: Mm, thank you. Yeah. Um, I have two, two questions on that. First, um, just to follow up, is do you feel like you're able to take that with you then, Deb, when you're, you know, in the thick of just mom stuff and and life stuff. Does it stick with you, or does it just feel more dialed in under the intensity of those circumstances? Or, you know, how would you say in a day that you can self-assess? Have I had enough water? Am I taking? I mean, I know you're training a lot anyway, so you're put in that position. But like, let's say on a regular day,
1: I think it becomes habit. Just mm-hmm. the more, it's like muscle memory. The more you do it, the more you. You don't even have to think about it. So during, say, a regular day, um, I always have, you know, a certain amount of water. I always have a certain amount of veggies and a certain amount of protein. And I think that just becomes second nature. The more you do it, you don't even ask. So if you're in a stressful situation, for instance, it is something that you don't even have to consider. It's just, oh, my, my bottle, like it's right here. I I always have it. So it 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 just becomes second nature, I think. And it's like when you're in sport, you know, if you're a hockey player, for instance, and you just keep taking slap shot after slap shot after slap shot. Eventually, you don't have to think about the body movements or the mechanics or the motion of taking that slap shot. It just becomes second nature. So things like mountaineering, things like running, you know, your running gait, uh, your speed, your pace, your body positioning, your arm swings, it all just becomes natural so that you don't have to think about it. It's, it's like anything in life, though, really, the more you do something, the more it's going to become natural to you. And you actually miss it if you don't do it. So for instance, if I don't have my two liters of water a day, I find I'm thirsty. So my body is actually craving it without me even knowing that it's craving it. So I think the actions that, you know, especially on a mountain or in, or in a race, you need to get to the point, and that's where training comes in. You need to get to the point where you don't have to think of a lot of those things. Cause there's gonna be a lot of other things coming at you that you're gonna have to deal with on the spot. So elementary things just have to be second nature to you. You don't, you don't need to expend the energy to say, oh, Have I eaten? Have I drank? Have I changed my socks? Have I, you know, done all these things? It needs to just become natural so that anything else value you can deal with it without getting overloaded.
0: I love that. Like, I just want to pause on that for a moment because it really feels, you know, just for any of us who are just listening to you talk and, you know, we might have these things that we want to do in our life or um, whether it's a physical Beat of some sort or a business project or a family situation or some other heart or soul impulse to do good or to do something bigger outside of ourselves, um, that if we're not taking care of ourselves first, like, like you said, it's just it's too overwhelming if just taking care of yourself is already an issue mm-hmm. and you haven't mm-hmm. made that foundation of course, then stepping out into things will become overwhelming, or you might not, you know, be able to meet it to the best of your abilities. And that sounds so basic, but I think it's worth just driving home again, right? For, for anyone who's thinking about, you know, even just the smallest step outside of their existence, right? Mm -hmm. First, start with yourself, let that become second nature to support the dream. If
1: you don't, yourself you can't take care of other people and i guess in a familial way Mm -hmm. mom especially if you're a new mom and you've got little kids if you run yourself to the ground you can't take care of your children so really we should always be our first priority and it's not being selfish it's self-care so we take care of ourselves we can then take care of our family and it's funny when you fly and they have that pre-flight video and it says you know when the oxygen mask comes down always put your own on first before you help someone else Mm -hmm. that is a, a life message because really if you don't take care of you you can't take care of anything else and that could be a family it could be work it could be you know an elderly parent that you're taking care of whoever it is if you don't put yourself first you can't be of use to other people um so and i think especially in like a critical environment like that it becomes so natural that if you don't you might not end up coming home. So yeah. I, I it just has to be something that is so ingrained in you that you don't question it. You don't think about it. You just do
0: it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I'm just thinking back too. I wanted to check in a little bit about, well, I guess first I'll just say, remember when we were in Kilimanjaro and, um, and there was a group and they were a group of guys I think, and they were really eager, and we were a group of maybe 20 women, and we had one day extra to climb because we were acclimatizing to the altitude, that was um, definitely my first experience with altitude, and we can get into that too later, but it's no joke, right? We talked about the cold, we talked about the importance of drinking water, and, and for all of that to stay warm, but also to meet with altitude. And I remember how these guys were really rushing past us and there was just a lot of testosterone and a lot of sort of, you know, they thought, you know, there was just this um, masculine sort of energy of like, uh, we, we got to get there faster. And because we're getting faster, we're doing it better in some way. I mean, this was all just the undertone and mm-hmm. we sort of, and our guides really encouraged us. They used the, the words, um, this, um, yeah and (laughs) and I think that's what Swahili or anyways um so that's what they would say to us pardon it's Swahili for slowly yes slowly and so slowly slowly you know that one step in front of the other and sure enough we did see one of the 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 climbers he came down you know he was delirious He was not well and he had to, he didn't get to summit because he, they went up too fast. Um, and so, you know, that just, it just reminded me too, of, of the importance of self-care and pacing yourself. Um, and then also being a woman in this world. Right. And so I'm curious to know, you said, you know, you've been doing the racing and you've been doing athletics for a long time. Um, maybe talk about in the beginning versus now, or if there's any change, like what was it like being A, a woman in this world, and then second, a mom, and any sort of you know, obstacles or challenges that came up and how, and how you met them?
1: I think there's a change in the athletic world um, in the last you know, 10 years, even five years. Historically, females have not been well-represented. Uh, particularly in climbing, it's like two to three percent of climbers are females. So the majority of my time in the mountains has been with men. Um, my tent mates have all been men, guides have been men, my teammates have been men. So it's a unique position to be in, and I think um, you know even endurance sports that that I've been doing endurance sports. I mean the the representation of women is is very low, unfortunately, still. It is getting better. Um, If if you go to say a marathon world or even a triathlon world, we are better represented there. But I think the more extreme sports, the more endurance related sports, we are not very well well represented. It is a little difficult because I think there's a misunderstanding with, um, there is definitely a way that females work versus males work. And especially in say a high altitude mountaineering world, like you were just saying, men, perhaps are more impatient with you know, getting to their destination and showing their strength and, and showing their speed. But altitude is a great equalizer. Altitude doesn't care if you're a man or a woman, if you're strong, if you're big muscular, if you're you know, four feet tall, it doesn't, it doesn't care. So women tend to do fairly well in that kind of environment because we are more patient and we are willing to, I guess, put our egos aside and say, hey, if I need an extra day to climb, I'll take the extra day. So if you're in a group with men and and I'm climbing with men, I find that challenging because I have a different style and I would approach things differently than they would. So I think it's an educational process on both sides and just trying to um, negotiate, I guess, how you want things to go. So on the last climb, I actually arranged for a private group. So there was only myself and one other climber and then two guides and we chose our guides. So that we'd have more flexibility and more control really over how the climb went because the previous times I was on Denali were with all male teams. And like I said, it's just so difficult to, um, work in that environment with men sometimes Mm -hmm. because things so differently. Um, as far as the racing world though it is getting a lot better and i think women are, are being more welcomed because it's quite obvious that women are capable of doing endurance sports i mean even 40 years ago women weren't even allowed to run marathons so there's been a significant really? shift yeah Catherine Sweat. what is back? so maybe 50 years ago back in the 50s 60s sorry right. um, weren't allowed to register for marathons because it wasn't thought that women were capable of running that far so it's been, you know, in my lifetime that that's changed, which is awesome because women are showing that we are totally capable and we are winning things. We are bettering men even in some cases. So there is a thing. It's slow, but I do see it. The high altitude mountaineering world is even slower, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, but it is. So I I'm hopeful for the future because the more we do it, the more people see it, the more it encourages other women to do it. The more we can support other women doing it. Um, I think it's just the beginning for us, really.
0: I hope. Yeah, I hope so too. And like, even just listening to your story and just you, you know, sort of being a part of this pioneering um, is really exactly all all we need is just to see it happen one time, you know, and then the more we hear about it, the more possible it feels. also because and I suppose you know that sort of parallels to maybe you know back when you know the shift from the home into the corporate world and how would you ever be able to have a high-paying high-stress job and manage children and a family and um, it's the same in a sense with this right I and I can imagine that you know and not to just to totally um, make it about gender but just you know a mom's role the the way we think about a thousand different things at once we're always multitasking in our head especially not just about the physical safety or that the basic needs of our kids are met but their emotional needs their internal landscapes um, and holding all of that while being away holding everything else that we need in a high pressure situation and in your case you know it it can be you know, not to dramatize it, but it can be life or death. So you're holding a lot. Um, and so I just think it's that much more incredible. And also I just wanted to speak to the, the man and woman situation and also maybe put it in terms of also like the masculine and the feminine energy where masculine, you know, which we all have masculine and feminine energies in both of us, whether we're man or woman, but the feminine energy is more process oriented and the masculine energy is more goal oriented. And we sort of weave the two right within us. And I love how you talked about altitude being an equalizer. And I feel like these mountaineering situations also equalize that, that it's both the journey, like it's process as well as the goal, you know, the end, the outcome, the summit, Um, And same in a, in a healing journey as well, right. With our physical bodies, if we're coming up to a physical challenge, right. It's, it's about being in the process, not just the outcome. Uh, Yeah. So you are preparing and training now for another mountain, your last mountain of the seven summits, which is absolutely incredible. You are not just heading to base camp though. You're you're summiting that is the intention. And what mountain is that? And when are you going, Deb?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I will be going to Mount Everest in exactly 12 months. I just secured my climbing permit yesterday. So it's official. I'm in. I'm going. Congratulations. You yeah, it's been postponed four times. So it feels good to have that, you know, that it that it is happening, that I know it is happening, and I have a date now, and I've got a permit. So I've got 12 more months to to get ready for it, um, it is the last of the seven, but I don't think it'll be the last one. As mm-hmm. uh, afterwards, but yeah it, it'll be the biggest one and it'll complete this journey of, of climbing the seven summits for me.
0: And what has that meant to you in terms of you know what was it six years ago that we were in Kilimanjaro we did the first summit. Um, and now I guess it'll be seven years later when you go to Everest?
1: Yeah. So from the time that we climbed Killy, it'll be seven years. Yeah. Yeah. So, seven years, seven summits. Like, like you were saying a process, it's been a real process and it's been an awesome focal point for me to, to keep motivated and to keep training. And for me, I don't, I don't have an issue with motivation. Actually, I, I'm a very driven person, so I don't need, you know, something to say, Hey, you gotta, you know, get up in the morning and train, but it's mm-hmm. really helpful. Focus, especially with all the life stuff that goes on to have that goal to say hey i'm working towards something and it just helps you with a little bit of drive to say hey i've got something on the calendar like i i can't take a day off today i i have something that i'm working towards mm-hmm. so yeah it'll be a seven year journey um, coming to this point sometimes seems like a long time other times seems like it was just yesterday that we went so obviously yeah. uh, time passes so quickly but yeah, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty huge endeavor. Um, you know, when, when you engage in these types of things, the training takes a lot of time. It takes time away from other things. So it's like a sacrifice, time away from family, time away from other vacations, things that you do with, you know, friends or partners. And, um, so if I, if I look at what has gone into it and how much time I've spent, it's been a huge part of my life the past seven years just for the project. So it'll be a culmination and just like when I went to Denali and I spent four years just working on that one mountain, when I left, it was bittersweet. sweet. It was such joy and happiness that it was done, but I was sad to be leaving because it was like the end of something. So Mm. I, I feel like when I go next year, it'll be, yes, a culmination of a lot of years of work, but it'll also be like the end of something. So it'll be kind of a bittersweet sadness, but it just means that it's, you know, the beginning of something else then after that. Oh,
0: Yeah. Oh, I, and I can't wait to see what that will be. Do you have sort of like a, any rituals or anything that you do to kind of close off? For example, you know, you, you spent four years working on Denali, then you came home um, after seven years and seven summits, because I feel confident you're going to get there on the first try. Um, you know, have you thought, or do you have any sort of rituals that you do or something to sort of close? each chapter or ground yourself back into, you know, regular life. Um, you know, I think about and this is extreme, but really, if you're in Antarctica, or you're on the top of the mountain in Alaska, or, you know, on top of Mount Everest, I think about astronauts, you know, going into space and and getting this glimpse, honestly, it's you know, getting glimpse of Earth from outer space, and you just get this widening, this this inexplicable widening of your perception and how small we are, and how make and how vast the world and the universe is. Um, I mean, I just know I had a very small glimpse of that on on the summit for the the short time we were up top of of Mount Kilimanjaro. That, you know is really, really profound. And so I think about, I always talk about, you know, climbing the mountain, summiting the mountain, but how intense it is coming down the mountain. That's um, yeah. maybe less talked about. So I guess there's two parts to that, you know, the, the coming down, you know, after the high and the the expansion, the, the intense expansion of summiting and meeting a goal. And then, um, and then the time that it takes, you don't just disappear and you're at the bottom of the mountain home again. Like there's another whole journey to get down of integration and processing and and pulling it all together. Um, So sort of that, I'm curious about that and any ritual or any process that you go through on the coming down the mountain. And then also the second part to that is does life feel sort of smaller or boring at first? Like, is there a process where when you just come back to normal life where you have to sort of recalibrate after being in such a tense adrenaline and, you know, just seeing so much beauty and then sort of, you know, doing the groceries and cleaning the toilets and going to work and stuff like that. I mean, granted, you're excited to see your family, but outside of that.
1: Yeah, okay, so processes. Um, yeah, so summiting is, is definitely only half the journey. And I think as society, we, we really emphasize, oh, getting there and getting to the summit and, you know, achieving your goal. But that really is only a small portion of the journey. Getting down is, I think, even harder than getting up. And especially when you get home, trying to acclimate to being part of society again, is I find... Like you said, the astronauts coming back and, and you know getting back in, into regular life again. It's it is a challenge because you become so focused on one thing and your your every day, your every moment is, is just you know one step in front of the other. And and like I was talking about before, the self-care and just taking care of you and what your immediate needs are. And then all of a sudden you come back and there's so many more things to think about. So it's it's really like a culture shock coming back and trying to adapt into, you know, a schedule and and a regular life and having electronics again and having phone calls and and responsibilities. And it's very different. Um, I don't say i have any kind of ritual of how to do that. It's more just um, me trying to focus on, okay, managing my emotions. I journal I write everything down so that I don't forget what I've been through and I feel the gratitude sort of ongoing for what I've been through and I and I don't forget the experiences. And then, you know, especially, you know, it, it, with doing this project for seven years, I've always got something that I'm looking ahead towards as well. So for me, it's kind of shifting gears, coming home, getting organized again, and then starting to focus on the next thing. Um, it's a very busy life, but it's very fulfilling as well. Um, so yeah, after next year, I'm, I'm not sure how I will go forward, like what kind of goal I will have going forward. I know there will be one, because I feel like for me, I need something to look towards and, and to train for and to have that goal in mind. Um, but ritual wise, I, I think just making sure that I don't forget the experience and just feeling grateful every day that I was able to be there I saw what I saw, I experienced what I experienced, and I can bring back those experiences into everyday life and hopefully enrich my family's lives by recounting those experiences and, and kind of them living by just seeing instead of me like saying, you know, this is what I did. and This is what you should do. It was, it's more like showing them how to live life, how to have experiences rather than possessions. Cause I'd rather live in a small house but have these vast memories than you know living with a whole bunch of stuff but not having a lot of memories so I think thing for me is just showing my kids that there's a lot of life beyond what we see every day and get out there and experience it as much as you can
0: mm. <laughs> beautiful and do your kids share you or sort of I mean I know a little bit about your kids but you know, just for anyone listening who's curious about um, you have three kids and you can share their ages. So it's not like you're in the thick of the young, but as we both know, as a mom now of a almost 21 year old, like I understand the mothering journey continues in a whole new way. So even though they're older, they meet us in different ways, but um, do, you know, do they really, are they really sharing in the celebrations with you or is it sort of like that's mom's thing and obviously like cheering you on or any, you know, budding uh, climbers or marathoners in your family? Not in that respect. See, when, when they were younger,
1: I feel like because it was always a family experience, whenever I would travel to a race, for instance, the family would always come whenever they could. So I think when they were younger, it was just, that's what they did because that's what the family did. Now they're involved by choice, which to me just feels so much more rewarding because they choose to ask questions. They choose to be involved. If they wanna come, they can, but that's again, their choice to be involved in, in my life and me involved in theirs. So it's taken on a different form now that they're older. Um, and you were saying ages, so they're 27, 25 and 19. So. I was doing all of these endurance things and and sporting events when they were little. And so they've grown up with it throughout their lives. So it's not foreign to them, but again, now it's, if they choose to be, you know, they, they express interest in it, then we'll talk about it, you know, show pictures. I don't know that I would have any budding climbers in my family, but certainly outdoor adventures. um, They seem to be more appreciative of that kind of stuff. Just getting out, and enjoying the little things and being grateful. You know, today they could go out to a trail and experience nature and, and breathe in the, the fresh air. And I think that comes from a lifetime of just being involved and seeing it happen in their own house. Um, so it's, it's just a different form now. And I think I'm, I'm a lot more grateful for their involvement now than I was back then, even though the support was awesome. And um, you really can't do these things without that kind of support, but it's just that we're more friends and it's like sharing an experience with a friend versus sharing an experience with a smaller child. Um, it just makes you feel really, really good when your kids ask you questions because they actually want to know. <laughs> when- <laughs> they actually want
0: to know, exactly. <laughs> oh, <ma. laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it's so true. Um, and I only have one that's at that stage, but I, yeah, I can I can feel the difference in that. and. Um, And I know, you know, just to say like that your kids have all taken on like really intense academic careers and pursuits and, you know, um, just from being on the sidelines, I don't know them really, but just knowing them through you, um, what they take on, definitely they've had examples in their home, you know, from mom and dad of what it means to persevere to go through struggle um, how to work hard and stay the course to meet their, their each of their individual goals, which are pretty incredible too. They've all done really great.
1: Yeah, I, I think um,
0: so. <laughs> yeah, of course.
1: <laughs> For me, my, my kids are my heroes. Like I find my main source of inspiration is my children. And it's just seeing them discover themselves and discover life and discover their their place in life um, it has been the greatest joy for me. So I I draw a lot of inspiration from my kids. Um, even still to this day, I think you were saying with, you know, their, uh, their academic pursuits, having one that's, you know, just finishing medical school, having one that's doing a master's, having one that's going to university in September, I find I, I watch them, and, and I kind of learn through them, and I live vicariously through them, just the, the joy and excitement of being young and, and doing all these these great things. Um, yeah, my, my family is really my biggest inspiration for me because of that. I just I love watching them succeed and excel and have their own struggles and then fight through it and come out the other end and, and be a better person for it.
0: Mm. And so let's talk a little bit too, just about, you know, you're married, you have a marriage too, right? So you have not only the relationship with the kids, but your husband. So, you know, I'm curious about how that process is for the two of you as you're training and then gone and coming back and sort of reintegrating and recalibrating as a partnership again. And, you know, you've just gone through this you know, massive experience, and he might be still doing, you know, his own things, but not on top of a mountain, let's say he's holding down the fort elsewhere and doing in his stuff. Um, and how you guys sort of move through that experience together. Yeah,
1: we've been together since we were teenagers. So we've been, you know, our whole lives, we've been together, we've been married 32 years now. So what what we've been through like it's it's happened from the very beginning so it's not something that i've just um come into and and, you know said oh hey i want to do this it's you know out of the blue it's something that we've been involved with since the very beginning Mm -hmm. Um, and like any relationship it goes through its ups and downs and there are adjustments and i think with especially the high altitude um stuff and and the multi-day events where i'm gone for longer it's been an adjustment because yes, he does have to be here and sort of hold down the fort. And when I come back, how do we then reconnect with each other? And how do we share our journeys together? Because he, he is involved in his own things, but they're different than mine. So how do I um, support him and his? And how does he support me and mine? And we are both very supportive of each other. Um, he, he fears for, I guess, the risk that's involved with high, high, high altitude mountaineering. And yeah. I, I get. But he would never ask me not to do it because um, he's just that supportive. So I think it's from a foundation of just years and years of us going through these life events together and um, wanting the other to excel and want the other to exceed, to succeed and not putting limits on them. Um, I mean, we're, we're a very strong couple, we always have been. And again, I think having a strong family has also helped too. Um, so we get together and we have family nights to talk about, you know, our adventures as a family. And I think that helps solidify that relationship too. So there is an adjustment. When I, if I'm gone for a month or five weeks and when I go to Everest, I'll be gone for nine weeks. So it's a long time to be away from home. So how do you reacclimate when you get home? It's a good question. It's, it's different every time, but, um, really trying to make time for each other and just sit down to try to share the experience. And I know it's not going to be something that he can totally relate to but it's okay if, if he doesn't, as long as, you know, we're sharing it and we're talking and it's open and, um, that's what matters more to me than actually making sure that he knows what I went through. It's Mm -hmm. no one really knows, like they don't need to know what I went through. It's just recounting the experience and sharing that I think is, is the most important thing for us to make sure that we don't miss anything. Hmm. Yeah. Love
0: that. It sounds like, you know, a relationship based off of like a deep mutual respect, right? For the, for each of you as an individual and then as a partnership, it takes a lot of, you know, back to what we talked about, the the partnerships on the mountain, like this trust and surrender um, and everyone feeling involved in their place in the unit at any given time because it can change. Um, yeah, that's really beautiful and it's also another like great example for anyone listening to who's in the earlier you know stages of marriage or um having a family you know it's just really nice to have an example and and just hearing um experience from a very strong partnership over the years so thanks for sharing some of that too deb i appreciate it <laughs> um All right. Well, we're getting up to an hour here. Um, I just wanted to maybe, and, you know, circling back to, um, what it means, you know, if there would be any sort of advice that you would have or, um, inspiration, you know, that you would share, um, for any woman listening or any person listening, um, who's thinking about taking on something bigger, you know, and maybe they're still in the first stages of trying to take care of themselves and build that foundation, or maybe they're just beyond that. Maybe the kids are getting a bit older or they're transitioning into a different stage. I know for me coming into my forties has really felt like a new shift in my paradigm and where my energy is, um, or beyond that. Right. Um, What is your, you know, what would you want these women or these people, these souls to hear, um, to support them on that path?
1: I think it's, it's not really a sense of what you're, what you're going into. I mean, it could be a, a new business venture. It could be starting a family. It could be a marriage. It could be any, any kind of life experience that you're having is just achievement isn't for the select few. Sorry, did I just cut you out? Oh, no, there you are. Yeah. Uh, yeah, achievement isn't for the select few. I think achievement is for anyone who can overcome the biggest obstacle, which is their mind. And, you know, just don't give up on stuff and um, trust that you are ultimately responsible for your own destiny and you can make what happens um, in your life is, is your job. So if you've got a goal, if you've got a dream, just don't ever give up on it no matter what kind of obstacle comes at you because it's, you know, the the magic happens when we go outside of our comfort zone. So if we really push ourselves, that's where I find the most fulfillment comes from. So you're going to have obstacles. You're always going to have obstacles in life, but I don't think you are ever thrown something that is not surmountable. And I I think you're in control of that to a large degree.
0: Um, So just up on stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Don't give up. It's, you know, it's not the easiest path, that's for sure. But like you said, the most fulfilling. Um, I've just been in such admiration of you. I'm so glad that I've met you and that I get to hike with you. You know, Deb and I go on hikes throughout the winter. Anyway, sometimes it peters off the more you get into your training season. But I get you for some of the, the winter months and we we hike for a couple of hours and we just get out in nature and just talking and um, being held by nature is really has been just one of the greatest support systems in, in my life these last six years. So I really appreciate it. They're very precious to me too. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I'm going to end with maybe a funny question because I've been talking for a while, um, to my group of, um, mavens, (laughs) which I call my group, uh, soul mavens, um, about experiences that are bad on paper, but good in life. So I've shared a lot about my story, um, you know, my less than conventional motherhood stories, some of the things that could originally or initially look, or if they were being judged simply on, you know, the list of good and bad, maybe something that's bad on paper, but really turned out to be good in life. Um, I'm going to be sharing a course on that soon. And so I was just curious, Deb, if there's anything that comes to your mind, you know, just in terms of the mindset of just seeing, you know, now after X amount of years or have it turned out that how something might have initially seemed bad on paper uh, could have been a source of shame or judgment from outsiders, but now has really turned out to be good in your life. The reality of it was really good. Is there anything that you can share to that? Wow. Um,
1: I mean, as far as injuries, perhaps, uh, I've had a few injuries that I've felt have ended certain aspects of my athletic career, but really it's shown me that there's a lot more out there that I can do just, you know, rather than that, than that one thing, mm. I think it's something like that. It, it just gives you a new door to, to walk through and, and find something else that will be as fulfilling. Just maybe not, it is something you're not, maybe you didn't think about it, but it, um, it presents itself to you sometimes in those sad times.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I, I don't have
0: anything that's like profound that way. No, but. that's perfect. I mean, injury in terms of, you know, after teaching yoga for uh, 11 years and we, you know, often talking about how injuries, right? We go in, we're used to doing something a certain way, our body performs in a certain way and then all of a sudden we're injured and we have this whole collapse of what we thought we're capable of Mm -hmm. and we have to dial it back. And so no, actually that's the most perfect example. Um, Would you wanna share just a few more minutes here in closing about um, an injury, something that you went through like that and how you adapted um, and what it's brought forth? Yeah, because I think it's really, really powerful for people to hear that.
1: Yeah, actually, it was sort of the end of my Ironman triathlon career, I suffered shoulder injury after shoulder injury. And I had reconstructive surgery done, and I haven't been able to swim since. So it was an end to that part of my career that I wasn't prepared for at the time. And I thought, I got to rehab it, and I got to do physio, and I got to make it strong again, and then I got to get back to Ironman, and I've never been able to get back to it. And so it was this, at the time, it seemed devastating, because it was such a big part of my life. But in hindsight, that led me to a different path where I started doing the ultra running in the mountains. And then that again, opened up another path where I started doing the high altitude mountaineering. So had I not had that injury, would I be where I am today? I don't know, but I think it shows you that you're not defined by one thing. And that if something is taken from you for whatever reason, um, there's still lots in store for you that you can find a new path. Um, And I still miss it. I'm still sad that I can't do Ironman anymore because I loved it. But again, I found this whole new world of endurance sports that I hadn't done before that I might not have done had I still been doing Ironman. So I think that was a pretty pivotal time for me to get into something different. And I've fallen completely in love with, you know, the whole mountaineering sport, um, running and climbing. And so I think in the end, it might have been a good thing just to, you know, shoot me in a different direction. That I probably might not have gone into if I hadn't been forced to.
0: Mm. Yeah, it sounds like it. (laughs) That's amazing. Perfect example. (laughs) Thank you so much, Deb. I, um, from where I'm standing, you know, I feel like I don't know if this is ever going to come down the line for you, but the type of mentorship that is uh, potential—I don't know if that's ever in your realm. Once. You know, I know you have a lot of big feats coming um, still in your own experience, but um, have you ever thought about any type of mentorship down the line for, you know, women, athletes, climbers, um, those who are just sort of starting out in the, in the, I don't know what you call it, the field, I don't know, but... <laughs>
1: I actually would love to do something like that. Um, If the opportunity presented itself, I think that would be a very satisfying way for me to give back. I feel like I've been granted a lot of really great things in my life. And I would love to kind of help and and give back to other people that would like to get into this kind of thing or just encourage other women to get involved in sport um, or even just other aspects of life, like business even. Uh, encourage women to get involved in typically male dominated places um so if if an opportunity ever presented itself I think yeah that'd be something I'd be very willing to to share with other people for sure
0: Mm -hmm. it would be a real gift and this um podcast is a real gift too so I thank you again is there one person that you can think of off the top of your head who's been a mentor for you in terms of um you know, an inspiration that has, you know, been a really good resource for you over the years as you've moved through, you know, either running or racing or climbing or, or even just life. Um, I wouldn't say that
1: I have one particular mentor. No, I I think I mentioned it earlier. I I find I, I get a lot of that from my kids. Actually, I, um, I find I want to do things. I want to experience things. I want to do well for my kids to show them um, what is possible. And you know, if if you push yourself and you you apply yourself, what you can actually achieve. So I wouldn't say that I get um, inspiration from certain figures. I, I think that comes just naturally from within my own family, um, and that fuels me really to want to do these things for my kids. Yeah
0: beautiful thank you (laughs) Um, well i know we are going to be rooting for you and i can't wait to hear in 12 months time i hope we can come back or whatever it's going to be uh 14 months time maybe um to hear about your seventh summit and how you're going to celebrate that because it deserves a celebration that's for sure um And not only that, though, Deb, you've done so many amazing things, um, things that a lot of us will only imagine, Um, but just who you are, your humility, the way you show up in your family as a wife, as a mother, as a businesswoman, as a friend, um, those are truly like um, above and beyond any of the other amazing things that you've done out in the world. So I just want you to know that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deb, for your time today. And I love you.
1: <laughs> Thank you
0: for having me on. This has been so much fun. <laughs> this is a perfect way to, I couldn't have picked a better, we've been talking about it for months and this was just the perfect way for me to also step into something new, which is um, these soul maven conversations. And um, so thanks for helping me dip my toe in the water with this. Thank you. Was your number one? <laughs> <laughs> my number one. Okay, thank you. Thank you. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to share it with someone in your life that is looking for community. And a container to explore womanhood, motherhood, and what it means to live a soulful life. Please subscribe so you can see when new episodes are released. And if you'd like to sign up for my newsletter, please email me at soulmavenhood at gmail.com. That's S-O-U-L-M-A-V-E-N-H-O-O-D at gmail.com. This is where I get personal with my audience as well as share any upcoming events or courses.